Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. The Ten Commandments is more than just a film. The 1956 version is what I'll be talking about in this episode predominantly, but the Ten Commandments themselves are an embodiment of a bunch of principles. Um, in this episode, I'm going to go into how I articulated all of that as a young child. Um, so, The Ten Commandments is a film by Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, it's actually something he made twice. The first version is interesting. Um, but the second version, the 1956 version, is really the first one I was exposed to. Um, I, my first encounter with the film was seeing it on an Easter Sunday. Uh, as probably many have likely encountered of my age bracket, the Gen Xers, Millennials. Uh, the film airs, or did air, certainly annually on network television. Uh, at the time that I saw it, I guess it's um, it's the great unifier, core mythos, the Judeo-Christian uh, complex central to American Christianity. It makes sense that as a film representation of this story, it would be constantly re-aired. Um, each year, this film's epic narrative of Moses from birth through death resonates through throughout households across the country, reminding those who watch it of their primarily Christian families, I would assume on Easter Sunday, of their roots in Judaism and the affinity between Easter and Passover, but also it perhaps reminds Jewish families of their significance within the dominant religious traditions of the United States. So I first watched this film, I think in 1983 or 1984, in the ranch-style house my adoptive paternal grandparents near Wasco, California owned. Um, it would have been around Easter, perhaps midsummer, airing on a Christian television channel. I think it was an, or I think it might have been an ABC affiliate out of Bakersfield, anyway. Um, compressed to fit the screen and intercut with commercials, of course. So it, the film had lost a lot of its holy veneer. It was not a true film when I saw it. I, I know that I didn't even see it in total. It was something that I wandered in and out of the first time I saw it. I think the second time I saw it, I was 12. But anyway, when I watched it again recently, and before writing about it, and then now speaking about it to you, if you were listening, and I made this episode, when I watch it now, there's no fresh cut lawn outside. Um, I wasn't, I'm not searching for colored plastic eggs. There's no potato salad lingering. My, um, my life as a kid was certainly filled with eating, um, lots of ham and bits of lettuce. I mean, uh, an, an Easter Sunday meal, you have to understand, is probably going to be a two-and-a-half-hour affair, and that's not counting food prep, which starts days before. So um, a big family gathering like that, you'll eat something, something will be on television, it'll run for three-and-a-half hours because of all the commercial breaks. I mean, I think when I was writing this book, I realized it was still airing it got 5 million viewers on Saturday, April 20th of 2019, when it was on from 7 to 11.45 p.m., beating out all broadcast networks for eyeballs that evening. So this is a film that was made in 1956 that people are still watching en masse regularly, uh, or at least that's what Nielsen ratings tell us, as recently as two or three years from the point where I'm putting this thing together. Um, so the Ten Commandments in 1956 is dated compared to the epic dramas that we're used to encountering at the cinema today, but you have to put yourself back to 1956 when it came out. I mean, Cecil B. DeMille's film is slower. It's more plotting than we're used to now because it was an excuse to get in and 
soak up some air conditioning. You weren't just buying the film, you were buying uh, a cool breeze for a long while. So these long scenes just sort of rest, you know, we're, we sit there staring at characters with little new development for periods. There's this over-the-top narrator who's thrust upon the viewer at seemingly random moments, which works out really well for commercial breaks, actually. It's constantly reminding us of the stakes embedded in 500 years of slavery and the subsequent, you know, absolution. So the acting is painful and wooden at times. Uh, the special effects are quaint. Um, but AFI has ranked it number 10 in a list of top epic films of all time at some point. Uh, it stands to reason that one might wonder why this film has endured, whether it's a dated revenant of a classical Hollywood. Are we watching it just to see Yul Brenner and, you know, face paint? Or in uh, something that America is reluctant to let go of? Or is there some reason, is there something great about the film? Like, is the film itself have enough qualia? Is it qualitatively good, if you will? Um, I don't know. Are we attached to it because of the uh, re religious annual network rescreening of it is its own kind of religious tradition, certainly? Is that based on the kind of religious guilt? So religious guilt, remember, I think of Fogs, the adoption or adoptee fog is uh, fear, obligation, guilt, and shame. So that's my touchstone. When I bring up religious guilt, I'm thinking of it within that framework. You know, um, guilt acts as a policing of one's behaviors, and guilt around identity, is, especially identity trauma and family secrecy, or family secrets or community secrets is a constant re-traumatization every time that is brought up. So what happens is as I'm working through this material, I hit those moments, I disassociate, and I have to bring myself back. And that's why this podcast, these episodes are longer than the chapter reads. Um, as it is, I recall watching the film with my adoptive grandfather, Waldo Unruh, who described it as just a great, great movie. I mean, that's that's how I remember him talking. I don't I don't know if he said that specifically, but I sure hear it ringing out in my memory. So I think he probably saw it first in the theater when it was the hot blockbuster and his recollection is anchored in that aesthetic experience, right? Seeing the film even in sections between car commercials on a teeny little screen still evokes that first clearly awe-inspiring encounter for him. To me, the Ten Commandments the 1956 one, always felt like kind of a cultural background noise to spring, alongside colored eggs, chocolate bunnies, and overly long church services featuring communion rituals. So, despite seeing it many times, I saw it often in bits and pieces, structured as a kind of puzzle of my childhood, right? I see it every year, but I only see fragments. Uh, I'm certainly aware of the story, but it's being filled in discursively when I encounter the film. So Moses is the first famous adoptee I ever encountered in narrative fiction. Um, I'm not entirely sure if my impressions might have been different. If my initial viewing of that film had been in a large screen, like I'm sure my grandfather and grandmother's was, my adoptive grandparents was, rather than the small screen of living rooms where I experienced it, you know, families huddled around each other all across the country is how I see it now. So it's with a certain maturity that I'm able to separate out um, sort of the religious deference with which I viewed this film as a child and then separate that into seeing the word of God played out for me on a small screen as a little kid versus the cultural touchstone that I see within the film now. Positioned, again, 1956 as, like, for all its flaws, conversational piece that started a conversation that needed to be happening in, in American society. So, you know, Moses freed the slaves, 1956. We're having a film come out about freeing the slaves. He's represented in the film by Charlton Heston, of course, his own 
problematic figure in American culture from that point onward. But at that time, as a child in conservative Bosco, California, um, uh, Charlton Heston is certainly seen as a compatriot, right? Uh, when I watch him as Moses, I'm shown a fellow adoptee to which I should perhaps aspire, right? The drama inherent in the film, all overacted and heavy-handed, um, and <laughs> the characters are stark, starkly racist, uh, the drama inherent in the film, while overacted in that way, uh, still slipped into my life before I was even old enough to realize the oddities of feeling an affinity towards Moses, right? I recall my adoptive mother, Karen, watching it with me, crying during the scene between, oh, Yochabel? I probably massacring some of these names as we go forward, but Bithia. So Yochabel is Moses' birth mother. And Bithya, his adoptive mother, um, I remember her crying during that scene as a child. It never, I think it was the second time when we watched it together as a family, like when we had gotten it from a video store, that I remember this. Too. But it never seemed to occur to her that Bithya, right, Moses' adoptive mother, an Egyptian princess, fell on the bad guy's side of the Bible. Um, maybe she got it. Maybe she didn't. Maybe the empathy building is just that strong. But Karen never seemed tr troubled by the inherent contradictions of the story of Moses as presented by the Bible. Um, the overwrought Moses of the film and our own roles as points of comparison. Because, of course, if I am Moses in this equation, then she is both my savior and my kidnapper. And my job as her adoptive son was to destroy her world, uproot it, and call out the utter hypocrisies of her beliefs, arrogance, and ideologies. If truly my parents saw me as an avatar of Moses come to earth, then surely one would think they understood the absurdity of their own roles in this drama, because Moses, at his core, was a bad adoptee. Um, he was sent away by his mother, adopted out of pure chance, what I think of as forced adoption, and I'll go into that more down the road, I'm sure, in further episodes as I write about this. But he then grows up in royalty and privilege, um, mastering the technologies of the aristocratic class, or essentially of the ruling class of Egypt. Um, <laughs> and then he utterly destroys the lives, the socioeconomic systems, um, a good portion of the army, and the beliefs of his adoptive family and the country that they ruled. Uh, the Ten Plagues are nothing to be sneezed at if you just look at the impact of a global pandemic and think about what that would have been like without, you know, vaccines or modern medicine. The Ten Plagues were pretty vicious. Um, now, there are many discrepancies between the Bible and DeMille's film, but the one consistent thread is that Moses burns it all down, or more literally floods it all with rivers of blood. The 1956 film is an epic narrative, in all senses of the word, epic, with a three-hour and 40-minute runtime. It begins with voiceover narration, reminding the audience that God said, let there be light, um, also mimicking the dawn of cinema in a certain sense. We are led through the genesis of the Bible, through rapidly to the Goshen hut of Yochabel and Amram, uh, parents of a newborn child, right? The Egyptian pharaoh, if you picture it, has just heard via prophecy that after 500 years of bondage, a Jewish infant will uproot dynasty and has ordered the death of all recently born Jewish male children. Yochabel, just as in the Bible, offers up Moses in a reed basket on the Nile. So here we have our forced adoption. Later in this, we'll get to the late discovery adoptee trope, uh, that you see in the Truman Show and you see in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, I guess, Volume 2? No, that's a, that's a whole different process. But let's go back to Moses and his relationship with the Divine before we get to Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Um, Yochabel's face in DeMille's movie, upon giving up her son, 
is practically euphoric, as though she is positive of Moses' fate. She's found by the childless widow Bithia. Now, Bithia, clearly in grief, greedily looks at that reed basket and quickly decides to adopt the child and raise him as her own, not telling others how he came to be hers. So, early in the film, there are some quick debates about the ethics of this adoption, mostly from Memnet, the servant of Bithia, and the only person who knows of Moses' true origins. Of course, Mem, uh, as a Hebrew letter, means water, and triggering me to think about memory. Um, in the tarot, I'd think of the hanged man, anyway. Let's go a little back to this, though. So Memnet, um, who knows in Moses' true origins. Uh, so at the climax of this discussion, Memnet sort of declares to her master, I will not see you make this son of slaves the prince of Egypt. And Bithia ignores Memnet's warning and swears her to secrecy. I'm going to say that, again, the name Memnet seems like a peculiar choice here. Memnet is not a character in the Bible. She seems to exist as a plot complication rather than a fully fleshed out character. The partial of the name Mem, like I said, is the 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet signifying memory. And as a plot device, Memnet was a catch-all for the memory of the stolen child being displaced. She's sort of the community awareness, a chorus, if you will, of the child's displacement. She stood both for the guilt of Bithia, but simultaneously, hmm, she's the semiotic container of Moses' origins. Uh, speaking about this is difficult for me, um, and my modulation and tone speaking is because I'm riding waves of emotion as I talk through all of this. And this is with it scripted. If I was trying to speak through this off the cuff, I would simply disassociate and spiral until I lost the thread. But let's get back to the film. Uh, and bear with me as my voice modulates my, because of emotional tones. The film uh, then, from that point on, fast forwards until we have a young, virile Charlton Heston as Moses. So we skip like his old adolescence. We skip any point in his life where we come to an understanding of how he got his abilities that we do see, where, where they come from, or how he understands, basically, rulership. Um, <laughs> so he is in line as the new pharaoh of Egypt, as his primary adversary for this position is also there on screen, uh, played by Ewell Brenner, as Ramses, the pharaoh's son. Ramses is comparatively exoticized, unlike Moses, who is Americanized in his physicality. Ramses sports a tuft of mohawk and is often showed shirtless and utterly absent of hair with darker skin. Uh, in addition to competing for the throne, Moses and Ramses are rivals for the love of Nefertiti, a character who seems to be a courtesan of the aging pharaoh who is set to marry the next pharaoh, whomever that might be. The Hebrew slaves, meanwhile, at this point in the film, are suffering, as they have been for 500 years. They are all keenly aware of the prophecy that they will be set free, but are unclear as regarding the specifics of their freedom. So through a series of happenstances, Moses gradually realizes he is both adopted and Hebrew. These are just random things that happen. Most of these events are a combination of his interaction with Jews in Goshen, but Memnet, warning Nefertiti from marrying Moses, tells her the truth. So the discussion turns to one of blood. Again, um, I find that going through dialogue from the film triggers me emotionally, so it's difficult to read out. But here's, here's the dialogue as best I'm able to recite it. <laughs> yeah. He is lower than the dust. Not one drop of royal blood flows through his veins. He is the son of Hebrew slaves. Nefertiti, in response, kills Memnet to keep 
I'll try it again. Hmm. Yeah. Nefertiti, in response, kills Memnet to keep the information from Moses. So, she is um, literally killing a memory, right? Uh, as the realities of his parentage dawn on Moses, he finally confronts Nefertiti, who admits the truth. A series of Ah, yeah. A series of scenes involve confrontations from here on out, right? So first, if you've seen the film and you're recollecting, there's a between Moses and Bithia, then between Bithia and Yochabel, and then uh, Moses, Bithia, and Yochabel, and then finally between Moses and Nefertiti again. And these are like ensconced in melodrama. I mean, but, uh, this is Jenny Ehrman uh, level of writing, right? Like, uh, uh, if you've ever, uh, if you don't know who Jenny Ehrman is, I guess I'm going a little deep cut there, but you need to watch her television shows. But, uh, so Bithya first denies his parentage to Moses. She ter uh, runs to Yochabel and makes her swear not to say a word, promising to free Yochabel and her family from slave life. And so Bithya says, essentially, would you take from Moses all that I have given him? Would you undo all that I have done for him? Man, it's hard to read. I put the throne of Egypt within his reach. What can you give him in its place? So, you know, Yochabel says, I gave him life, and Bithya says, I gave him love. Did your hand dry his tears when he was troubled? Was it your heart that ached for him? So, you know, there's this string of dialogue that made my adoptive mother cry every time, right? It's hard for me to even read, thinking back on it. Indeed, uh, she must have felt quite a deal of affinity towards Bithya, the Egyptian princess who stole a baby and mislabeled him. Um at least subconsciously, so at least in the moment, as you're as she's viewing this alongside me, right? Um, so the arguments being made by Bithya are those that are often made by adoptive parents. I can offer them better things, and you would be a bad birth mother to deny him of those things. Yeah. Subsequently, her next argument was one I heard often through adulthood in the film. Yeah, it's the adoptive mother who dries tears and wipes noses, thus giving birth is besides the point and not indicative of actual motherhood, right? Yeah, so when Moses confronts them all. Um, however, Yochabel cannot lie whilst making eye contact, and he confirms the truth uh, that he knew when he first got it out of Nefertiti that he's an adopted child of Hebrews. Now, again, there is this inherent undercurrent of anti-Semitism that is performed in this that is not in the Torah, obviously. It's not in the, it's not in the Bible. It's not even in the Baptist stories. It's very much a product of the screenplay, the screenwriting. And like, the constant adoptive parenting apologism that comes into this film is so wrought with melodrama and overdone that that this is not a reflective view this film is not a reflection of the uh, story of moses and the freeing of the slaves so much as it's a, like a deep meditation on the ethics of adoptive parenting um, and then like whether or not you should tell somebody they're adopted and ultimately Moses being told he's adopted is what causes him to tear it all down in the film in a way that is again not there in the original story necessarily 
at least not in the way that it is dealt with in the screenwriting. So when you're watching a film as a child and it is a religious story and you're being told, hey, here, here's a good way for you to get your head around this story, and you absorb all of the ideology, all of the narrative framing that gets packed in around to make that story work on film, right? You can't you can't do a screen you can't do a screenplay directly from the bible necessarily you have to add a lot of narrative elements to make any of it fit together um, on screen so the screenwriter brings their ideologies into how they build up these narrative frames so i don't get that when i'm 7 5 12 watching this with my family but i get that when i'm you know, a few years ago, two years ago, when I rewatched this um, as a middle-aged adult, well, past my Saturn return, I'm able to look at it with some gravity and say, this is sort of the emotional impact it would have on a viewer. This must be the ideological messages that were being received in those places, right? So let's go back to Yoko Bell. It was played by Martha Scott. She was a human being. We're saying words that a screenwriter, a human being, had written for her to say. And she's awesome. She's ethereal and um, she's play, uh, Martha Scott plays Yoko Bell as beyond human choices, as motherhood, birth and loss. Uh, she seems more pleased that she's found the deliverer from slavery than she had found her long-lost son. So, you know, there's a part of me that finds even her portrayal <laughs> complicated and problematic, but it was really good. So it's, it's, this goes back to my question, is this a good movie? It is filled with good actors and good scenes and moments, and it is overly long in a way that movies these days are creeping back towards. Um, and it had the best special effects of the moment. And it had an amazing moment in this moment. So uh, as she recognizes Moses as her son and as the delivery uh, from slavery, Moses goes into crisis. His identity is in shambles. Um, I'm going to try to read the uh, the words he says. At that moment, he he says, "What change is there in me, Egyptian or Hebrew? I am still Moses. These are the same hands." the same arms, the same face that were mine a moment ago. So, you know, here's my first encounter on screen with the depiction of a late discovery adoption or a late discovery adoptee. And just like any late discovery adoptee in the real world, Charlton Heston plays Moses as flummoxed, right? His whole world has been driven into an identity crisis. He's uh, immediately led uh, to distrust everyone around him, everyone who he's ever known. Um, that combination of mistrust of those who had previously cared for him and frustration over the reality that he is not who he thought he was is sort of a collapsing moment of the film. It's really hard to watch. No matter how you feel about the film, as an adoptee, I think any adoptee would find this moment hard to watch. Uh, <laughs> as a meditation on transracial adoption, I think it's powerful. Uh, but it is complicated, again, by my concern that it is somehow slightly anti-Semitic in its portrayals. So here we go again. Um, as a Hebrew, he no longer knows himself or what his role is in the universe, right, in the film. So Moses's response, both well-meaning and a touch petulant, is to go to work with the slaves, his kin. Again, remember, this is a long movie. Nefertiti figures out where he has gone and has him picked up and brought to her. In turn, their conversation is 
disconnected, right? Well, Moses claims that he wants to be with his people, the slaves, Nefertiti suggests that he might be better served becoming the next pharaoh and freeing the slaves might be the better path. This suggestion is not to be downplayed. So it's also extremely strange given that this is a screenwriter's take on a biblical tale. If Moses has this option, what is he being offered? I guess the question is, is, he, uh, is Nefertiti literally telling him at this point to overthrow the government, become a usurper through legitimate means, right? And then just undo the institution of slavery? And if so, that sure seems like a pretty good option that would have offset a whole lot of other things that are going to happen in the film that again are not in the original story in the Torah and the in the in the Old Testament uh, as I understood it at the time. So Moses rejects this plan, <laughs> and while his heart might be in the right place, you got to question his methods, right? The Jews in the film at this point had been enslaved for five hundred years, uh, so. A few more years to overturn the Egyptian government without bloodshed, he's Pharaoh. Um, at that point, he can undo everything. That's what Nefertiti says he can do. Instead, Moses confronts the Pharaoh, um, his final confrontation regarding bloodlines, uh, really. And interestingly, the Pharaoh acknowledges Moses' parentage, but still gives him the opportunity to reject the Jewish people and become the next ruler. Echoing Nefertiti's ploy, right? Um, Moses thwarts this offer, and Ramses is subsequently given leadership and the hand of a distraught Nefertiti. So uh, the sexual politics of the 50s are a lot of fun to watch in relation to adoption narratives, um, because that's what we're seeing in that moment. Moses is exiled to the desert, uh, presumably to die while Ramses takes the throne following the previous pharaoh's death. Okay. So I guess he planned to die at that point. Moses survives his exile. He finds nomads who help him, marries, and returns to Goshen to save the Hebrew slaves after being instructed by a god in the form of a burning bush. Everyone remembers this film for the plagues, but in fairness of the 10 plagues, only three are actually shown on screen, which is kind of truly shocking. I mean, this is supposed to be an action-centered film <laughs> in today's zeitgeist, each plague would have its own, you know, plush animal uh, or web app or emoji. Um, so anyway, negotiations turn foul, and the tenth plague, which is the killing of the firstborn, results in the death of Nefertiti and Ramses' only son. So the articulation of this final plague, where the angel of death moves through the town, killing the firstborn son, is rendered as a smoke or gas in the film's sort of visual uh, lexicography. So visually, it's represented as the, this gas moving through the streets of Goshen, bringing death. Um, but unlike the gases used in the wars throughout DeMille's lifetime, when he was making these movies, the death is quick, uh, evidently painless and mostly silent. The deaths happen off screen and we are alerted to them through the cries of the mourners. This creates a supplemental narrative of a scorned and bittered Nefertiti who eggs on Ramses to bring back the Jews and kill Moses, even after Moses and his followers have been granted freedom. So, Nefertiti is the one who sends the army, essentially. The soldiers come after the Hebrew slaves. Moses parts the Red Sea, which then swallows the Egyptian army whole when they follow. Now, the final act is Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up the mountains to get the Ten Commandments the movie itself is named after. They finally show up at the very end, um, one of which is Thou Shalt Not Lie. So I want to bring that back into uh, focus. Um, <laughs> The other is honor thy father and mother. Um, so the final act is that Mount Sinai moment. Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and during his absence, the only recently freed Jews take up idolatry and hedonism pretty rapidly. Moses' anger at the Hebrews leads him to angrily throw the commandments and yell at them, and he is punished by never getting to set foot in the promised land of Israel. 
So this film ends with an old Moses and his wife looking on at the land that they will never arrive at. This second half of the film, this this sort of Moses identity crisis, late, late discovery adoptee onset, which you, you can see, you know, in the Truman Show too, which is a great uh, almost reimagining in a weird way of the Ten Commandments. Um, hang on. <sighs> yeah. The second half of the film deals significantly less with an adoption narrative. Instead, I see it as um, through the lens of the racist narratives of slavery and reconstruction era in America. The Hebrew slaves, as they are depicted in the Ten Commandments, don't have it so bad, right? They have homes, vehicles to travel with, and seem to have a certain number of goods for trade and sale. So it's problematic. They are not destitute, clearly must have been compensated in some way, but they're slaves, right? So um, per how they are depicted in the film, they're not shown really in slavery, except that they're sort of shown as ghettoized, uh, part of a community of uh, production. When, when they are told they may go, they just travel out of the land with little discussion, abandoning their homes and their stuff, more or less. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai, this story seems to align with colonialist pro-slavery narratives. Look what happens when we leave the slaves alone for 10 minutes. They resort to their hedonistic ways, right? He comes back down and has to chastise them. In essence, the second half of the film stops being a discussion about adoption. It starts to make a suggestion that rising out of slavery is easy, that slaves are not actually destitute, and that white folks better keep an eye on slaves. Um, in other words, this was pretty typical mainstream 1950s cinema. The world of the film shows us the Egyptian royalty and army and the lives of their slaves, all of which are Hebrews. There is the briefest of appearances of others, specifically the Nubians, who are fetishized as a racial other alongside the Hebrews. Their darker skin color on screen kind of reminds, and in a way, it remarks upon the whiteness with which the Egyptians are depicted. So we have Yul Brenner, the darkest and most native, if you will, of the characters is Ramses, of course, and he's of Eastern European descent. He is othered, but even his othering is quite white. Um, consequently, in the chaos of the departure from Egypt, Nubians are shown acting as servants to the Hebrews, which is a confounding of the social order, which underscores the chaotic nature of Moses's like revelatory experience in one sense. It's also certainly reflective of like the, just the nonsense that DeMille packed into the movies in some ways. Um, the second half seems to comment more on slavery, race, and social order. However, well, it's not active in the second half. The adoption narrative of the first half of the Ten Commandments film still entwines itself in the roots of the story. So obviously, if not for an adoption, the Egyptian slave system would never have been destroyed. Without an adoptee, things would have remained status quo. And so Moses is the disruptor, both in this film and in the in the biblical story. That that's consistent. And without an adoptee's resistance, Nefertiti would have had her choice of husbands, and her child would not have died. Without an adoptee, there would have been no prophecy, no mass slaughter of boy infants in the first act of the film. So Moses is the destroyer, the deliverer of slaves. He's also the bad adoptee, the vector for disruption and chaos. His nuanced understanding of his adoption and late discovery in the film are wholly the cause for death and destruction. I am not, of course, condoning slavery in the film or elsewhere for Jews or for anyone else in this statement. Um, I'm merely acknowledging the role that Moses played in this narrative fiction that was based on the biblical story and his own ambivalence towards this role because of his roots as an adoptee. So, like, his motivations in the film don't map to the Torah or the, the Old Testament. And again, I say that this is not the first film that Cecil B. DeMille titled The Ten Commandments. So, in an earlier version in 1923, he made it was just purely a morality play. 
Moses had a small role in this first film, and in the second part, the story became like an Americanized parable reconciling modernity with life choices in a biblical sense. Like, it's religious film teaching, indoctrination. And now in the 1956 film, in the same title, DeMille seemed to be tackling something else. While we know on paper in the 1956 version who the good and bad guys are, the specifics become more ambivalent. And it's hard to interpret Bithia and Nefertiti as bad exactly. If anyone is bad in all of this, it's Memnet, the constant reoccurring memory that there is an adoptee, right? And Memnet wasn't in the Bible. Anyway, so let's go back to Pharaoh. Uh, the Pharaoh, which is his adoptive grandfather, for all of his flaws, was willing to ignore Moses' parentage out of a love for Moses in the film. Dathan, a traitor Hebrew, played by the usually more brilliant Edward G. Robinson, is the primary villain of the film, which again tells the audience today a little bit about the director's own opinions regarding slavery, treachery, and villainy, I think. Um, it thus should not be at all surprising to learn that DeMille himself was an adoptive parent. Now, I can't possibly know what his goal was in making the 1956 version of the Ten Commandments, but I, I have to believe in screenwriting that he and producing, directing, he might have been working through some of his emotions regarding his own adoptive experiences. Uh, I see in the film as a desire to propagandize the importance of the adoptive mother, a strange choice given that the Egyptians were, as I said, in every sense of the word, the villains of the original text. And Bithia's confrontation of Yochabel and Bithia's eventual exile alongside Moses both position the adoptive mother as the moral center of the film's universe. Yochabel, on the other hand, is absent, save for her life-giving capacity and approval of Moses' choices. Moses begins the film filled with agency, successful in military, and clearly positioned for leadership of the country. And by the end of the film, he is sapped of agency, literally driven to task by his wife and his god without free will, and finally failing to reach the land he was promised. So his fate as an adoptee is complicated, and his petulance continually undermines his on-screen presence. Like, you think Luke Skywalker is bad in uh, A New Hope? Charlton Heston whines more than Luke Skywalker ever could, is Moses. So watching the film consciously, thinking carefully about the message that is being constructed about adoption, something that DeMille clearly contemplated throughout his life as an adoptive parent, I find that I'm most interested in how Moses's position shifts from active participant in his world to receding into an agent of the desires of others, right? Ultimately becoming an avatar of the will of God, as the Torah indicates he does, uh, given like mystic uh, miraculous powers to, uh, through, the, through God, both in the Torah and in the film. He's, um, but he's completely subsumed into a vehicle for the Jewish people so Moses is many, he's he's an object, not so much a subject in the film, right? Moses is manipulated and used. Uh, he's first by Bithya, who needs a child to feel whole. The subtext being that she is unable to have children of her own, and then by Sethia, the first pharaoh who wants a legitimate heir, read white. Uh, if you will, to the throne, then by Nefertiti who wants a husband, and finally as the Jewish avatar. So it is no wonder that my adoptive mother cried when Bithya confronted Yochabel. The heroism here is confusing. This is no morality play, it is a justification. Um, a Jeremiah, perhaps. A conversation meant to work out the complex morality of something that does not necessarily have good or bad guys. The film functions in the ambivalence of our modern, or if now postmodern choices, I suppose, and through the lens of Judaism as seen by Christian viewers and creators. So as a nest of contradictions, as probably all great films end up being in some way, and I'm still not sold on if this is a good or even great film, although AFI is. It is a nest of contradictions, that is what it is. 
It purports to reify biblical teachings, uh, yet it romanticizes and complicates the Bible in ways we might not at all be comfortable with in retrospect, or if you view too closely, no matter where you fall religiously. Equally messy is the precise nature of Ramses and Moses' relationship as half-brothers alongside Nefertiti, who appears to be either their father's mistress or their sister, or perhaps both, and she is also promised to whomever becomes Pharaoh as a kind of queen-in-waiting. So the temptations of Nefertiti, when she becomes aware of Moses' racial lineage, are fascinating, particularly when she offers to overthrow the social order alongside Moses once he is Pharaoh out of what appears to be deep-seated animosity towards Ramses, rather than a love of Moses. So Nefertiti is a creature of passion and a primary driver of the film's plot, but she neither appears in the biblical version nor is her presence ever fully explained as a character in the film. So The Ten Commandments from 1956 is an epic film. DeMille's work is, if not a masterpiece, um, uh, certainly a commentary on the time and place it came from. It is the vision of ancient Egypt that was most attractive to the golden age of Hollywood, uh, as shown by the fact that it's constantly being reshown. But also it carries within it the complicated way that our nation had begun to understand the role of adoption and adoptees against the backdrop of how we started to see civil rights itself. So, and it's very much a patriarchal framing of all of those issues in one neat package. I'd say concise, but again, it's three hours and 45 minutes long. So if I'm going to crystallize the lesson that this film teaches its audience about adoption, it would be this. Beware. The adoptee brings chaos and disorder. They are <laughs> wielders of wild magics. They're, they're, they're occult masters, or at least they, they start out being occultists or wizards in some way. Um, but no matter how a child is raised, whether as royalty or as slave, their true nature will ultimately win out. But at the same time, the adoptee can function as deliverer of their people. One must be wary then with adoption, right? The adoptee may save or destroy, all depending on who is telling the story. So I want you to think about that. If you haven't seen the film, maybe watch bits of it, read bits of the screenplay, think about what it was saying at the time, what it means now in reflection, um, what is a bad adoptee, <laughs> and um, how did that conversation, that 1956 film, which has been shown audiences globally every year since it has come out, um, how did that shape our contemporary adoption industry? Because it certainly did. The ideological frameworks within which we move are what allow us to understand something as good or bad. Taking a child from their mother and giving it to another family for that child will always be traumatic. There is no way that it will not be experienced as trauma. If you don't have what William S. Burroughs called that naked lunch moment, if you do not stop and look at what is on the end of the fork that you are putting into your mouth, if you do not understand what you are consuming, Burroughs warned that at the end of the day, it would be you that you are consuming. Maybe that's the secret of the Ten Commandments. There was something eating at Cecil B. DeMille, and he had to put it in a film to make sense of it. And maybe in reflecting on what he had to put there and understanding the arguments that are embedded in that film, we can unpack that, particularly as adoptees or as the kept, and interrogate that industry through that lens of how others saw it when it was in its infancy. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of a podcast I may or may not ever make public. If 
you are listening to this, then you probably already know my name is Jeffrey Wes Unruh, and I was born on April 15th, 1974, in Twin Falls, Idaho, at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center, a little bit before 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And before the sun went down, I was at my adoptive parents' house. And I've been trying to make sense of that ever since. Thanks for listening.